From RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. The fake news will say headlines. He didn't fill up the arena. CNN is fake news. Don't talk to me. Go ahead, please. If we can't discriminate between serious arguments and propaganda, then we have problems. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. Brian, you've been over there in D.C. for over two years now, isn't it? Yeah, over two years here now. I'm curious, since today we're looking at the media and its role in elections, accountability and misinformation, what are the differences that you've noticed between, say, the Irish media and the U.S. media? Well, I suppose first if you look at the TV media, very, very different. And I mean, this is something that's been discussed at length. But when you look at the cable network channels like the CNNs, the MSNBCs and the Foxes, they're extremely partisan. As we know, Fox is very pro-Trump. So he does a lot of interviews with Fox. He speaks about how he likes them as a station and they always promote him and give him an easier time than the other stations. Then you look at CNN and MSNBC and they are very anti-Trump. And, you know, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other. There's big problems with both because, okay, you should say Fox shouldn't be giving him an easier time and they're too much in his favour. But sometimes the other two can go ridiculously to the other extreme, CNN and MSNBC. They can be so anti-Donald Trump and just always look for the negative line. And the way the news is presented on those channels isn't in the traditional old way of, you know, you play a news package with a reporter on the scene and then you come back. It's almost all talking heads. So the presenter will Mm. start his show, be it Hannity on Fox or someone on MSNBC like Rachel Maddow, and they will go on a rant. They'll have this big opening monologue and it's all opinion. I know many of you, you might be worried about the ongoing political tornadoes and hurricanes, the mob and our corrupt media. I would say, though, Jackie, Moving away from that very partisan, divided, opinion-based, sensational cable news channels, there are still traditional news programs here on the three main networks. So ABC, NBC and CBS every evening at 6.30 will do a traditional news like the 6.1 News or the 9 o'clock News on RTE where you have that traditional style of reporters doing packages uh, and then live reports off the back of those. And interestingly, those old-fashioned, if we will, traditional news programmes have been doing very, very well in the ratings since the coronavirus hit because everybody's stuck at home. Everybody wants the information. For example, ABC News, their nightly news programme, is presented by a guy called David Muir. That's the most popular one at the moment. He gets 12 million viewers a night now compared to Sean Hannity on Fox News that gets 5 million viewers. So he blows them out of the water. So they're way more popular. They're quite trusted. They're not partisan They're less sensational and they don't come down one way or the other pro-Trump, anti-Trump to a degree. So they're seen as more independent, more down the line, more in the way that we would have that Irish media, as I say, trust in the likes of your 6-1 news or your 9 o'clock news every night. 
I, I came across this survey in 2018, so it's two years ago now, but it found that over 60% of Americans believe that the news they consume is biased. And they think that 80% of the news that they see on social media is biased too. They're upset about it as well, obviously. More than 80% said they were angered or bothered by seeing biased information. In comparison to Ireland, a similar study the same year in 2018, it said that the trust in traditional reporting has increased by five percentage points to 53% and 64% are concerned about fake news. How does an American decide in an age where you have fake news and misinformation, plus some broadcasters, like you said there, who channel a particular stance, how do you separate the bias, the lies from the truth? That's a lot of responsibility for the viewer. Obviously, within a democracy, it's healthy to question everything. But at the same time, it can be kind of exhausting too. I think that is probably why we're seeing a lot of this return, as I spoke earlier, certainly during this coronavirus crisis, to those traditional ABC, CBS, NBC nightly news programmes with trusted mainstream journalists, people coming back to that in greater numbers, looking for the truth, particularly in this time of crisis, because it's becoming harder and harder to tell the real news from the fake out there. And that brings us to our refresher time this week. Fake news and deep fakes, the origins. Fake news, it's a term that has been popularised in recent years by the current Commander-in-Chief, Donald Trump. For a Tuesday night, I said, you know, if we have about uh, three or four empty seats, the fake news will say headlines. He didn't fill up the arena, you know. Now, while Donald Trump may have popularised the phrase, fake news is old news, really, here in America. It's been part of the news traditions since the political propaganda created during the American Revolution, all created to deliberately misinform or to deceive or to mislead readers and sometimes polarise them. But since the American Revolution, we've had the information age. Everything is heightened by the digital world we live in. According to one study, more than a quarter of voting age adults visited a fake news website supporting either Clinton or Trump in the final weeks of the 2016 campaign. And looking at its spread and connectivity too, a BuzzFeed analysis found that in the months leading up to the 2016 election, the top 20 fake news stories had more shares, reactions and comments on Facebook than the top 20 hard news stories. And of course, then we have the problem with new technology because brings with it different and new ways of delivering this fake news rather than just false information or misleading headlines. And that's when we come on to deep fakes. So deep fakes are like photoshopping for the modern era. It's a form of artificial intelligence called deep learning used to make images of fake events, hence the name deep fakes. And here with them, you can put new words into politicians' mouths effectively, making it seem real. Now, BuzzFeed did an interesting piece here where they created a deep fake to show how believable and plausible they can be, they got Barack Obama to go off on a rant that seemed very legitimate. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. For instance, they could have me say things like, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. 
Or there was one of Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook CEO, bragging about having total control of a billion people's stolen data. And it was so believable. There was a news strap across the bottom of it. One man with total control of billions of people's stolen data, all their secrets, their lives, their futures. And while they may seem funny, it can be extremely extremely dangerous as new techniques allow unskilled people to make deep fakes with a handful of photos. Fake videos are likely to spread, especially when it aims to cause division, especially in the realms of politics and elections, not only with deep fakes, but the clever and believable editing out there to real videos. For example, we had that video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, her speech, which was slowed down last year. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. Now, of course, in reality, that particular Nancy Pelosi speech didn't sound like that at all. It actually sounded more like this. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. But the damage was done in that case with that Nancy Pelosi clip. It reached millions of people on social media last year. People were tweeting it and sharing it and it led to allegations that she was drunk or there was something wrong with her. And it's not just mischief and it's not just trying to make people laugh or get a bit of fun out of this. There's a big deeper consequence here. The impact of all of this, deep fakes, synthetic media and fake news. What it happens is it erodes trust, it creates a zero-trust society where people can't tell the truth from falsehood during a time when their faith in the media is already in trouble and already being eroded. And when that trust is eroded, it's easier to raise doubts about specific events. These mechanisms are really testing the media, journalists and the public's trust in what they hear and what they see. It is something we're all trying to navigate at the moment, especially as Election Day 2020 comes closer. Let's bring in someone whose job it is to try and do that. Donny O'Sullivan is CNN reporter covering disinformation, politics and technology. How's it going, Donny? It's a mouthful, isn't it? I know it is. I was like, is there, did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's good. It's 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 been busy, obviously. I'm gotten very very lucky, and I'm actually staying up with a friend in Connecticut, a bit out of the city, so it's been oh. great. But you know, the specific job I have didn't really exist uh, before the last election, although it really should have. Um, you know, the United States got pretty shook after they found out all what had happened in the lead up to the 2016 election here with how Russians and and Everybody yeah. else were, were using social media, using Facebook to to try and mess around with the U.S. electorate. Um, so as we've seen Facebook and Twitter and YouTube playing a bigger role in our lives and in society and in politics, um, we've they've decided to to put me, the Irishman, uh, chasing chasing the lies on social media. No better man. Uh, over the last couple of years with you reporting on this quite niche subject, but super important, what is the most astonishing thing that you have come across in your reporting, which could pose a real threat to democracy and elections now and in the future? When you look back over the, the past few decades, um, you know, if, if you look at what Russia, when it was the Soviet Union, was um doing in the US and no doubt it was going both directions but um you know the the Soviets the KGB would try and infiltrate activist groups here in America uh particularly African American groups uh, the anti-war movement um and try to pull them to the fringes try to pull them to the extremes to sort of 
um, you know, exacerbate tensions here in the U.S. Now, to do that back in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, they would have had to have an actual plant or have a mole in the in those groups. Um, and it took a lot of effort and a lot of risk. Now, through social media, what we've actually seen here in the United States is the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the, the uh, African-American main civil rights movement here at the moment. That was hugely um, exploited by Russian operatives in the lead of 2016 election, where they set up pages, some of them much bigger than real Black Lives Matter pages. And they were actually organizing from St. Petersburg in Russia, protests happening on the ground. Now, you might say, on the ground here in the US, you might say, why is that such a big deal? So what? But, you know, it's all about how these movements are being exploited, right? When we went back and spoke to a lot of um, Black Lives Matter activists, they were saying, oh, yes, I remember that Facebook page. It was taking a lot of my activists away. So it was really dividing and d- dividing movements. So I think that is very concerning to see that you can actually mobilize people from a foreign country, uh, all just from behind a computer screen. But I don't think any of us are, are kidding ourselves. I think, you know, some Americans might like to think that the biggest threat through social media is... Uh, from abroad, but you know there, there are more than enough uh, capable actors in the United States who are very uh, well positioned to to spread misinformation in that way online as well. Do you think people are ready for the twenty twenty elections in terms of being aware of fake news, what it is, what misinformation is, so they are not affected by it? No, but I think newsrooms are not ready. Um, you know what we saw last time in 2016 was I don't think journalists realize how much of a target they are for misinformation because if you can get a journalist to pick something up uh, and then run with it that gets it in front of a much greater audience than any anonymous troll or bot might be able to do and of course it legitimizes it and then you know we get to the whole issue of you know a lot of folks here are talking about deep fakes and if you think about that in the context of an election race i mean you can even think about the access hollywood tape that came out in the weeks before the 2016 election that was a video but the audio was the incriminating bit um if a fake tape were to drop uh, fake audio and you know oftentimes when these audios leak we don't know where they've come from you know i could see some newsrooms falling for that equally uh, a very Orwellian and dystopian is that somebody could now use um, the 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 fact that this technology exists as an excuse to say, oh, well, I didn't say that, you know, very possible where 2016, 2020 and the Access Hollywood tape came out. Trump might say, oh, you know, I didn't say that. That's that's deep fake audio. That's fake news. The topic of this particular podcast this week is fake news, the word used by Donald Trump all the time, but it's often followed by fake news CNN. He has a particular go at your network, clashing with those journalists from CNN all the time in the briefings. What's the view in CNN now? How do they feel about these Donald Trump attacks? Is there a sense of hurt or is there, does it rile everybody up and just make them go after him even harder? Look, it's certainly, uh, I guess, a surreal time to to be in the United States. I moved here at the start of um, 2016. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think for, for all of us at CNN, uh, it just makes everybody extremely focused on, um, you know, getting the truth out there and making sure that we do our jobs as best we can. And, you know, I think we all know that if there's ever a mistake made or if there's ever a correction, uh, which happens, of course, in, in every news organization. You know, after all, 
everybody's only human, but we know now that that if there's ever a mistake, it will it will get picked up by Trump or Trump Jr. Um, I suppose you got to remember that you know the American politics is so combative and divisive anyway that you know the, that a lot of that was happening already. But of course, Trump has has brought it to a, a new level, particularly on how he attacks the press. Where do we all go from here with misinformation, fake news, especially as election 2020 intensifies in the next couple of months? Do the media have to work now even harder to gain the trust of audiences? And do we still have to give people the tools to spot fake news? Yeah, it's it's extremely difficult. I mean, I, I really don't know where this is all going to end. Um, You know, just today we broke a story about a woman, a U.S. Army reservist who uh, competed in the military world games, which are basically the military Olympics. And they took place actually in Wuhan in China before before the outbreak was known um, in October of last year. She's had no symptoms of the virus, has not been diagnosed. She's been working away. But conspiracy theorists have decided to have picked her uh, to sort of bolster this theory that um, that she started the coronavirus and that some way the coronavirus is actually from the US. Her life has been turned upside down. She's been, they're seeing death threats online. They're getting, their home address has been posted. Uh, she and her family are, are terrified. Um, so it's clear that, you know, the, the, the social media platforms are not on top of this um, and that this can have a real impact on people's lives. When it comes to the election for 2020, I mean, we CNN has invested a lot in in being very quick with fact checks and things like that when Trump is speaking and during debates. But, you know, for a lot of people, they just want to read the truth that they believe. Right. And Facebook, I think, enables them to. Oh. Oh. Oh, there we go. Sorry about that, lads. I'm here in the woods and the Wi-Fi was gone. It was beautiful Connecticut a minute ago, Donny. It's like being back in Kerry. Although I'm from Kerry. I can Kerry for the reception. You were telling us about the election 2020 and where it all goes from here, Donny. Great. Yeah, well, that answer was a bit long-winded anyway, so better we cut it. Um you know, I'm not hugely optimistic uh, for this sort of online information space uh, for 2020. You know, uh, America is is really divided. And a lot of people, whether they're on the left or the right, uh, really only go to the news sources and, and, and opinion sources that they agree with. And of course, you know, Facebook's algorithms and things help reinforce that because, you know, if, if Facebook figures out that you like seeing uh, conservative content, they'll they'll show you more than that, uh, more of that. Donny O'Sullivan, CNN reporter covering disinformation, politics and technology. And I think proud Kerry man. Thank you so much very for joining us. Proud on Kerry Face man, of Mind. now in the woods of Connecticut. A very <laughs> proud Kerry man. <laughs> no All-Ireland medals, though. You definitely won't no. get one this year anyways. <laughs> I I had to give up uh, under 12 South Kerry B championship uh, when I uh, won a medal on the, on the bench. So I... I Will I you see the up. standard in Kerry would be so high. You should have gone for hurling, Donny. You could have been a great Kerry hur- <laughs> <Kerry> hurling. <laughs> oh, excelled, excelled. Yeah. yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I could, I don't know. I could be on American Idol here and my parents would only give a damn if I show up in the Kerry Manor <laughs> <laughs> So... Uh, <laughs> um, stay in touch, lads. Let me know if you ever need anything and hope to, to see you over here sometime, right? Thanks, Tony. Brilliant Talk stuff, Tony. Thanks so much. 
See ya. Bye bye. Bye bye. Chat to you. Thanks. Bye 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 bye. Right, well, let's go to the man who champions the term of fake news, US President Donald Trump. He's no stranger to attacking the media and spurring a divide of us versus them on the press podium through his Twitter and on the campaign trail. By the way, that is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. And since his presidency over the past three years, he's had some battles. And uh, they're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let would me be ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may uh, ask Peter, one other question, are you worried? Of, that's enough. That's no, enough. Mr. President, I, that's well, enough. I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Something we have been talking about here on States of Mind over the past couple of episodes is how in an age of a pandemic, how the presidential election candidates are campaigning. Joe Biden laying low, cocooning at home, literally trying to figure out a digital campaign as he previously had a very weak online presence compared to Donald Trump. But in the meantime, we've seen your favourite nightly ritual, Brian. For 50 days, Donald Trump taking centre stage at the White House briefing room for those unmissable press conferences each evening, turning them into primetime TV for the president when he clearly cannot have or run his typical campaign rallies. I feel like when I watched the last episode of Game of Thrones, it was like, <laughs> what am I going to watch now? This thing that I've been hooked on and addicted to for the last several weeks is no more, or maybe not. So people are probably aware that Donald Trump had a pretty bad press conference, to put it mildly, last Thursday evening, where he went off on this rambly rant, inserting his own views and opinions about what he thought might be cures and treatments for the coronavirus and mentioned, pondered out loud, and asked his scientists if they could look into the concept of maybe inserting light or heat into the human body to kill the virus. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. These press briefings were kind of getting him into a bit of trouble anyway. I think at the start they were great. You mentioned there that Joe Biden had nothing like this. Donald Trump had a primetime TV audience, big ratings every night. He had the podium to himself. He could waffle on for an hour or two, as he did on many occasions. But what had happened in recent weeks, Jackie, was actually his poll numbers had started to dip again and his disapproval ratings started to rise, his approval ratings started to fall and Joe Biden has started to rise in the polls in recent weeks. So I think there was a belief out there that these press briefings were actually doing Donald Trump no favours anymore. The effect had worn off. People were sick of him shouting at journalists and having rows. They were sick of him coming up with theories about how he might treat the illness when he is not a doctor, he is not a professional. And now the strong suggestion is that they might start scaling them back and we mightn't see any more of these press briefings. Or if we do, we might see Donald Trump's appearances on these press briefings being a lot shorter and a lot more scaled back. When we're talking here about misinformation and fake news, 
it's not a one-sided take to say that this is exactly what the US president has been channeling, broadcasting misinformation and fake news to his nation and contradicting the medical advisors standing right next to him like Dr. Anthony Fauci. Often these er errors stoke confusion that has to be cleared up later by his own team. Absolutely, the president of the United States should be front and centre. He should be on the podium most nights of the week. He should be trying to reassure the American people. And if he wasn't, people would be criticising him for disappearing. But he's taken it to the other extreme. He's trying to control it too much, giving his own medical advice, giving his own theories. And then the attacks on the press really have been ramped up at these daily press briefings. He calls reporters a disgrace. He tells them to be quiet. He told one CNN reporter one night, you, you don't have the brains you were born with. And then there's this sense, I think, and a lot of people have commented on this, that sometimes... The female reporters, the women reporters, get this almost condescending, quiet now and take it easy and calm down. Enough. This kind of very belittling, yeah, enough. These kind of belittling comments to the press. And again, that's not sitting well with people, I think. Remember, Donald Trump has a core base of, what, 30%, 40% of the electorate out there who love him and he can do no wrong. But that's not enough to win the election again. He needs to boost those numbers higher. And I think those swing voters in the middle who were favouring his performance at the start, I don't think they're happy with these press briefings. But Brian, these are not just words. Some real-world fallout has come from this when a Maryland public emergency management agency said it had received about 100 calls about people using disinfectants, prompting a warning that such products should never be used to put into somebody's body through injection, ingestion or any other route. And Donald Trump blamed the media for taking his comments out of context. But looking at this maybe from a different angle, are some reporters now almost conditioned to believe the worst about him and his administration. It's obviously a suggestion he should not have made considering how serious it is and those consequences we saw. But are journalists just latching on to the worst when we know he mulls these things over in public and out loud without thinking them through? This is nothing new. And, you know, one of the White House coronavirus response coordinators made the point that the president's tendency to muse aloud about his ideas as he processes new information. Well, first, that was a dialogue he was having between the DHS scientist and himself um, for information that he had received and he was discussing. Um, we have made it clear, and he, when he turned to me, I made it clear, and he understood that it was not as a treatment. And I think that kind of dialogue will happen. Yeah, so, look, just to... In a little bit in Donald Trump's favor. Look, absolutely. As soon as you say the words disinfectant and injecting in the same sentence, you have a problem. But to be fair to him, a lot of the headlines ran with Donald Trump suggests you should inject disinfectant as a cure for the coronavirus. He actually didn't. As you said, he mulled it out loud. He turned to his medical advisors and said, you know, you're talking about how disinfectant will kill the virus on a surface. Is there any way maybe we could look at disinjecting, you know, inside the body, you know, and the same with light and heat. And, you know, it was this sort of out loud musing. Donald Trump's retort, though, it didn't hold water. He said, I was being sarcastic. I was posing a sarcastic question to you guys, pointing to the journalists in the room. I mean, he wasn't. That's not the case. And you can watch back the video. He's posing the questions to his medical experts. But Donald Trump, mm -hmm. frequently, when he's in trouble, will fall back on the, oh, I was only joking. 
the old playbook of, oh, I was being sarcastic, oh, I was just joking. But when you were the president of the United States at a podium being watched by millions of people in the US and potentially billions around the world, you can't be joking and you can't be sarcastic when it comes to disinfectants, when it comes to poisons, and when it comes to a virus that's killing tens of thousands around the world. Now, to talk a little bit more about journalists, their relationship with Donald Trump right now in this era of so-called fake news, we're joined by Tom Rosenstiel, who's the executive director of the American Press Institute. Tom, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks. Tom, when you look at some of those angrier exchanges in those press briefings, particularly those most recent coronavirus ones, he has shouted at journalists, you're a disgrace, you're fake news, I'm not answering your question, you have no brains... Sometimes colleagues say to me, why doesn't everybody get up and walk out and unity in the press and let's show him? Do you think that would ever happen? That everybody out of just pure anger and being sick of him, let's join together. Let's all step up and walk out of the room. No, and I don't I won't. It wouldn't happen. Uh, and, it, and I don't think it should. Um, I think American journalists uh, believe their job is to uh, ask questions and report the answers. Um, and so Trump's uh, denunciations, they're part of the story. Um, if you got up and walked out, you would become the story and you would have to defend those actions and explain that you're making a political protest, which is an uncomfortable thing for journalists to do and really just not part of the American journalistic tradition. If you ask questions that are absurdly combative and that you know are going to get no meaningful response, you're probably not doing your job very well. And if you ask questions that are just designed to get a rise out of the president in a predictable way, you're also fundamentally not telling the American public anything that they don't already know. So some of those questions have probably gone over the line. But Trump, whenever he feels threatened, he just attacks the messenger. This is a reflex for him. Tom, what do you think about networks broadcasting these briefings live to target misinformation coming out of these briefings, wouldn't it be better to watch it on C-SPAN and broadcast the newsworthy moments while having time to fact check what he's actually saying rather than letting them run on for 90 minutes or two hours? I think that's a very good idea. I remember uh, interviewing Ted Koppel many years ago, he was a very prominent anchorman in the United States, ran a program called Nightline. And he said, turning a camera on an event is not journalism. It's simply technology. Journalism is editing, making choices. And in the context of this president, our job, uh, particularly in the pandemic, as journalists worldwide, is to amplify correct information and try and minimize and certainly point out information that's false. So if by covering the briefings, you're amplifying uh, information that's dangerous, that's false, rumors that are unproven, you're not doing your job. You're emphatically making a mistake. And um, it, it would be better to simply put them on some kind of a delay, even if it was a 20-second delay. Uh, that also would demonstrate to the public your responsibility in fact-checking. And if people want to call you a censor, <laughs> that's fine. I mean, that's part of what uh, being a gatekeeper over facts is. You censor out things that are absurd. Does Donald Trump have a point when it comes to the media in the United States that part of it 
is fake and is biased when there is so much opinion from broadcasters and journalists. What do you think is the future of the media in America at the moment when trust seems to be so low? Yeah, it's very interesting. This is something I've studied for a very long time. I've been involved in almost every trust study that's been done since the early 1980s. One thing that's important to remember is that um, trust in the United States media began to decline uh, in the 1980s, and half of all the decline in trust occurred before the Internet. It coincided with the rise of deregulation of media and the rise of cable TV. Uh, and the, and suddenly we had many more media platforms. Talk radio was born during that time. Uh, and one-sided media, particularly electronic media, before uh, the Reagan administration would have been illegal. We had rules, regulations that said you had to, the equal time rule and the fairness doctrine, which basically mandated that if you if you allowed one side to, to mount an argument on your air, you needed to let the other side do that as well. Uh, it's interesting when you look at the trust data, the group that distrusts the media the most in the United States are Republicans. The group that is the second most distrustful are people under 40. Why? And across the, across the ideological spectrum, left, right, centrist, people under 40 are almost as distrustful as Republicans. And the reason I think, my inference, is they grew up in this time of highly partisan media, not the time of Walter Cronkite or the BBC. We were discussing earlier, Tom, I, I'm sure you're following it here. I, I, if we go back to those old traditional media of the nightly news with David Muir and Lester Holt, Nora O'Donnell, mm -hmm. they've seen a bump in their ratings. And I know some people would see, oh, that's from another era that you have that mainstay nightly TV news bulletin. Is there a sense there that in this time of crisis during the coronavirus, people are returning maybe to the more of the old traditional TV uh, broadcast? Yes, which is not unusual, you know, at the national level, particularly because as the news gets past the uh, uh, sort of breaking every day and wanting to know what happened this in the last hour, these nightly newscasts become a pretty good way to get a summary, particularly when you're exhausted and you think, I just want to know if anything terrible happened today. They're very convenient. The other thing that's happened um uh, is that local media has seen a, a big surge in engagement. And one of the reasons for that, again, a very large country, the rules of engagement in any state or city vary. We don't have a national policy that Trump administration has refused to put one in. So if you want to know what's going on in California, California or in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Cincinnati, Ohio or Cleveland, your local media is a better source. So for 20 years, the definition of community has become more abstract. It's been the community of my interests and not so much where I live. And interest in local news has declined steadily over the last 20 years in the United States. This pandemic has made people's definition of community more geographic again and has spiked interest in local news. I'm skeptical of national network newscasts and their ever having the role they once had because there are so many other sources of national information now. You probably get this all the time, Brian. If a movie was made about you, what actor would play you? 
So most people would probably say Patrick Stewart, who played John Luke Picard <laughs> in Star Trek, due to our similar hairstyles. But I have always said, Jackie, that I think Brad Pitt should play me in a movie. But I think everybody likes to think that, and uh, we've seen that's actually happened over the last few days in a very interesting way. Yeah, Dr. Anthony Fauci said if he ever appeared on Saturday Night Live, he would like to be played by Brad Pitt. And that's exactly what happened over the weekend. It's not the funniest of segments, but I think it shows that dreams can come true. I'd like to thank all the older women in America who have sent me supportive, inspiring, and sometimes graphic emails. Now, there's been a lot of misinformation out there about the virus. And yes, the president has taken some liberties with our guidelines. So tonight, I would like to explain what the president was trying to say. And remember, let's all keep an open mind. Chat to you next week, Brian. Thanks, Jackie. Chat to you next week.